And uh, you can grab your Gospel of John scripture journal if you have it. We're back in John 18 today, but you don't need to open it there right away. We're going to do a little meandering first. Uh, if you don't have one of those scripture journals and want one, we've got a bunch on the resource table back here. Also, some Bibles. And if you don't have one with you, please keep that. Let it be a gift. Uh, today's reading is John 18. We're in verses 15 through 27. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of his man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, now we'll get to the meandering. Um, as Weston mentioned, we are now in the first week of the season of Lent. This is a period in the church calendar where largely we reflect on our shortcomings as image bearers of God. This is a period where we see, as all of today's readings showed us, that everyone throughout time has been given an opportunity to mirror God's character, His love, and how everyone throughout time has failed in some regard, except for one person. And that's the beauty of Lent, is that this doesn't end with humanity just left to our own devices to sort things out and kind of work our way up to perfection, because we know that's not possible. No, Lent ends with the celebration of Easter. So this very basic story of God offering something and humanity deciding, no thanks, I think we'll do it our way, is seen, as we read today, on page 3 of your Bible. The first time we see this play out is with Adam and Eve in the garden. But that cycle continues as more humans get involved in the story, and they face the same temptation. That is, do we trust God's plan, or do we do things our own way? We see this in Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Jacob and Esau, Jacob and, like, everybody in his life, Joseph and his brothers, Joseph and Potiphar's wife, Joseph and his brothers again. It's this same melody, different lyrics, right? And, and those stories that all repeat this theme of man's vision against God's vision, that's all just in the book of Genesis. 
This continues to spiral out of control in the Old Testament until an entire people group whom God saved from literal slavery and led them through the desert can look at him and say, yeah, but what have you ever done for us? And go following other gods. Scholar Tim Mackey explains multiple sections of the Old Testament and New Testament, just scripture in general, sections and themes as spotlights on the human condition. And these spotlights slowly turn toward the reader as you continue through a passage in total disbelief that these people could ever do what they're doing until all of a sudden you look around and that spotlight is just shining with full force on your own life. It's as if to suggest deep down that we're no different. Like everyone in these stories we read about, we too would eventually capitulate to our own twisted pride, and we would assume the authority of God for ourselves and others. But, God says, throughout the Old Testament, there is one coming who won't do that. There is one man who will encapsulate the greatest commandment in the Old Testament, which is to love God who is the ultimate good, and then to love others with that ultimate good in his mind and heart. But the main problem, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, is we don't see that guy. The story ends not with a Messiah, but with a cliffhanger. So the Gospels pick up on that Old Testament story in search of an ending, right? And they place Jesus in the role of this Messiah. Each gospel writer quotes a bunch of Old Testament prophecies and promises, and they show how Jesus fulfills them, not in a casual way, but in ways that make it impossible for Jesus to be anyone other than the perfection of God's character and love. And this is the only way for humanity to be reunited with its creator. See, we can't erase the thing within us that separates us from God. Only God can do that. And the aim of the Gospels is to say, hey, guess what? He did. He did it. And it was right here with Jesus. So with that in mind, how does that work into today's reading? We're coming off the heels of the arrest narrative in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now we've got Jesus being questioned. Where does all that fit into this fairly simple looking narrative? Last week, Weston covered that passage before this, which is the arrest, where Jesus is betrayed by Judas in the garden, and he's arrested, but not before Peter tries very valiantly, or maybe I think a better word is stupidly, to save Jesus. He tries to come to his aid by taking out a sword and just getting after it with a bunch of armed guards. And the irony that Weston pointed out is that if somehow Peter manages to go ninja warrior on a group of armed soldiers and temple guards and get Jesus out of there without being arrested, he would have effectively damned himself and everyone else. This was, this was God's plan, and what Peter thought as good was directly going against the will of God. So his actions stood in stark contrast to Jesus, who was praying right there in the garden that this moment that he was in right now would pass him. But ultimately, remember, what was Jesus praying for was that God's will would be done. So unfortunately, this is going to be week two of us beating up on Peter, because it's not quite finished. Uh, what we have here is really more of the same. This is a continuation of the arrest narrative. It's not particularly difficult to see the sequence of events, right? Jesus is questioned by the high priest. Peter is questioned by a group of servants. Jesus answers truthfully. Peter lies. 
But what's the importance of this? Why are both characters mentioned, and why did all four gospel writers include this event with both of these individuals? You know those action movies that have really like nasty scenes where the protagonist gets captured and tortured for information? And things that pop into my mind are, it's like, I don't know, Mission Impossible from, it seems like yesterday, but that was probably 15 years ago now. Or Christopher Nolan's Tenet, a movie from just a couple years now that I finally just saw, which is great. But there's this, there are these scenes where the protagonist is just being like ripped apart for information. And while I can't really watch that stuff because it gets to me and I, I might pass out, I do know there's one thing that we've all thought about for sure, which is you've thought about yourself in that situation. Like everybody's thought at some point, what capacity of abuse or threat or violence could I withstand to keep safe somebody I love, right? As I mentioned before, for me, it may not be very much. But I, I think that's a little bit of what we see in this passage. Peter and Jesus are both staring down a really bleak situation, but they handle it differently. And what's more is that I think in this little passage of just a few sentences, there is all of the larger themes spread throughout Scripture from beginning to end. This is kind of a reminder as to why Jesus' incarnation was just so important. It's really a reminder as to who He is. So let's think back, if you can remember what seems like a lifetime ago, the first few verses of John, this gospel began with what? A theme of identity. And John's actually going to wrap up his account with that theme as well. He says that Jesus is this man to which the Old Testament promises pointed. He is the light of the world, the Son of God. And John's entire reason for writing is to bring one to belief in Jesus' name. So remember, John uses signs or miracles performed by Jesus to really prove this identity. And they're public, too. So it's not as though Jesus does and says one thing around the crowds and then gets in secret with his disciples and says something else. So with that in mind, I want to look just at the middle of our passage before we examine both of the bookends. In verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. In a way, I think when we see the high priest of Israel asking about Jesus' identity after these miracles that he performed, four of which took place on Jewish holy days, like the most important days of the year, we should spot some of the irony. Because not only has Jesus been making bold claims and giving sign after sign that point to his oneness with the God of Israel, he's doing this in the epicenter of Jewish worship, right in front of their faces. So, in a way, if anybody should have understood the identity of the Messiah, it would have been the religious elite. It would have been these officials, the high priest, surely. Also, look at Jesus' answer when the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. If you remember, Jesus has already told us he would not give up his disciples. He's not going to forsake them. This was a huge theme the last few chapters of John. So here Jesus says, you don't need to ask me or this handful of people. I've been teaching the entire world. 
Then, for some reason, Jesus is smacked for somehow belittling the high priest, and his response is basically, tell me what was wrong about what I just said. So, again, the religious officials, they had their own vision, right? They had a vision of how God was going to do things, how the kingdom was going to arrive, what the Messiah was going to look like. Despite Jesus' repeated teaching and his message that the kingdom had arrived with him, and this is what it looked like, those who were most familiar with the Old Testament clung to this image that they had built up of a military king who would come in and drive out the Romans, return Jerusalem to its former glory, and so they rejected Jesus. Who, let's be fair, he didn't really look like a warrior king. In fact, just a few minutes earlier, Jesus had told the one person who was willing to be violent for him to stop being violent. Like, hey, Peter, put your sword away. That's not what this is about. So, is the high priest right here in John 18 ignorant as to who Jesus is? Or has he seen the evidence of God's work and already decided, like so many throughout the pages of Scripture, no thanks. I think we'll do it our way. This is man's vision being shoved in front of God's vision. This is Genesis 2 and 3 all over again. And what does Jesus do? When faced with an unjust trial, an unjust line of questioning, an unjust verdict, and physical violence, he endures without failing. He perseveres perfectly. And it's a good thing, because in this moment, we're reminded of how awful our own attempts at perseverance can be. And this is the part where we start beating up on Peter. See, at the very moment Jesus is enduring ridicule in the courtyard, Peter is denying he even knows the guy. You'll notice these, d these two denials, or three of them, they really bracket the high priest's questions to Jesus. We get Peter's failure, Jesus' success, and then two more of Peter's failures. And biblical authors use that a lot as a literary tool. This drives focus. It pushes focus inward on what Jesus is doing, but it also helps to explain what's going on on the outside. I think there are two main ways we can look at Peter's response here. There's a face value reading, in which case Peter's just ashamed of being associated with Jesus, and so he denies him mainly just for self-preservation. Peter wants to stay out of trouble, but he also kind of wants to see what happens. But Weston brought up another interesting view on Peter's answer that I think really builds on last week's passage in the betrayal and the arrest. And that is, these denials could come not necessarily from shame, but as a deflection, so that Peter could remain close to Jesus, like just in case his rabbi needs more help. After all, Peter was willing to attack a whole crowd of soldiers just a few minutes ago by himself. So we'll look at both of those, but real quickly, let's, uh, let's examine the first view. So we'll assume Peter's just ashamed of Jesus. Man, that's... That's your teacher. More than that, he's the Messiah, and you know this, Peter. He's the Savior of the world, literally God in flesh, the one who called you by name and taught you for years as he displayed the love of God to you and everyone around you. That's the guy you're ashamed of? It's like we're at the protagonist torture scene again, and Peter didn't even need to get strapped down to a chair. 
Like nobody's yanking on his fingernails or his teeth with a set of pliers. They just ask him the first question and he folds. This is the guy who, when Jesus said, you will all fall away, answered, Jesus, even if everyone else leaves, I'm not going to abandon you. Never. That guy, who was so up in arms to prove himself a loyal follower, is denying Jesus three times in a row. So what we see here in this view is that Peter took the name of Christ, calling himself one of Jesus' followers, and then acted in a way that is totally counter to that claim. If we remember Tim Mackey's scripture as a spotlight metaphor, this would be the part where I feel the heat from that light bulb. But I think the most important thing to remember here is that with this enormous shortcoming, Peter eventually realizes an even more enormous capacity for God's grace. This was an event that Peter wept over. We see that at the end of Matthew 26. So for all of his talk, for all of his real belief in Jesus, and even his actions, Peter still failed. But it wasn't the end of his story, not by a long shot. Just go read Acts. And thank God that there's no single moment that stains our lives beyond the measures of his grace offered to us. So what about the second option? What if Peter's denial is somehow meant to help Jesus? Like, it's a little lie. We do some bad, but we do it for a good reason, right? Or maybe a better way to say this, in keeping with today's theme that we've seen through all of our readings, God has a vision, and I have a vision, and I just think mine is better here. Jesus needs me. I'm not going to be any good to him if I get chained up or tossed out of here. What if somebody else needs their ears chopped off, right? I think this is especially ironic if we consider the arrest scene in the garden again, right? Because Jesus is praying fervently for any possible way to be removed from this agony. The agony that here in the high priest's courtyard he was starting to endure and would go on through the cross. But above that, he's praying for God's will to be done. Then, remember, he tells Peter to wake up and pray too. Peter, you're going to be tempted. Pray. But we don't want to pray. When things get tough, there should be immediate action. There should be swords and swears. Never mind the fact that Jesus had foretold his arrest and death multiple times to the disciples. Never mind the fact that he had just finished telling them he would be leaving, that there would be tribulation, and that it was okay because he had overcome the world. No, no, no. Instead of actually stopping to listen, and trust Jesus to sit still and pray and perhaps better understand the vision of God, Peter took a nap. Then he jumped into survival mode, trying to spring Jesus from some kind of trap. So I think with those two views in mind, either way, there's a dichotomy between Peter and Jesus, and it could not be more apparent. Regardless of Peter's thoughts or his motives, his response to opposition as it relates to his standing with Jesus in this moment is one of complete failure. Jesus was accepting the vision of God, which would lead to the saving of many lives. And Peter was quick to forget what Jesus had just told him. You need to pray. The spirit is willing. It's the flesh that is weak. Temptation is coming. Persecution is coming. And then, 
Who? Jesus? Mm, no, I don't, I don't know that guy. So, the story of the gospel that I think is contained here is that humanity, from start to finish, has always had a heart set on our own vision. But also that God's vision is much bigger and better than our very narrow view. Jesus came to usher in that vision to show what the kingdom of God is like and what it will be like one day right here in full. And it doesn't look like what we might expect, and I think that's what catches us off guard. That compels us. I think about myself as a, a, a young teenager, just like coming face to face with the gospel. It's beautiful. It's attractive. It brings relationship with God and justification, and that by faith, not by anything that I have to do. That's incredible. But then... We've all heard these stories, right? We know about Jesus. His birth, his teaching, his betrayal, the arrest, the crucifixion, the resurrection. See, what I wonder is, how can we believe that all these things are true and still, like Peter, find ourselves denying Christ in whatever way that that takes shape? And I think the old adage is true. Familiarity breeds contempt. One of the unfortunate truths of the human condition is that perseverance is very difficult. This is why basically every New Testament author talks about perseverance. C.S. Lewis, who's not a New Testament author, but like he's up there, right? In his book, The Screwtape Letters, talks about the danger of the same old thing. He comments that humans love novelty. We love new experiences, and we make real strong emotional ties to those new experiences. But those ties and those experiences bring us chasing bigger and better emotional highs and experiences, but they've always got to be new. What Lewis says is that feeding into this unrhythmic life diminishes pleasure while increasing desire. So what we want is infinitely new. But what Lewis comments on is what we need more than anything is the pleasure found in rhythm. Once we can look at something good as being the same old thing, it becomes less important and eventually despised. So I just want to remind us of actually what we brought up last week when we mentioned what the church has historically called common means of grace. Things like prayer, reading scripture, taking communion with the church. These things are rhythmic. They're easily accessible. These are practices that can be used to better understand God's character and thus better align with his vision. And I think if we consider Lent, this is a perfect rhythm. This is a season. The church calendar, historically, has operated on seasons, reminders. These are established rhythms. Lent, in particular, is a reminder of how much we need grace. Grace is something we don't earn, we certainly don't deserve it, but we get it anyway. We get it when our vision of good 
continues to conflict with God's vision. When we neglect to pray and instead keep a hand on that sword, when we stumble into persecution and immediately fold under pressure, denying Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 has a passage that I think sums up our conflict between the now and not yet, where we live with faith for God's total redemption of creation, and yet creation remains for now fractured. Listen to this. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So I just want to leave us with a reminder. Lent is a reminder. It is a 40-day reminder that in both the desert of temptation and on the cruelty of the cross, Jesus emerged victorious. And while we will inevitably fail, God's grace will not. But perseverance is not easy. Let's thank God that our example of perseverance is also our arbiter. And I'd love to pray for us with that in mind. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his perseverance when we know that our best efforts eventually will result in failure. That our best efforts will leave us disconnected from you with a gulf that we cannot cross on our own. We thank you for Jesus and the fact that his perseverance has resulted in bridging that gap, giving us true relationship with you once more. I thank you for the seasons like Lent that remind us not just of our failure, but of the victory that has already been won. I pray that we could use a season like this to truly look forward to the celebration of Easter. And as we approach it, that we would better understand and appreciate just what has happened. God, I pray that you would guard us from the danger of the same old thing. Yes, we've heard these stories, and yes, we may know them even by heart, but Lord, make them compelling as we continue to rhythmically practice these means of grace. I pray that you would help us to truly enjoy Jesus and enjoy the community that you've put together in which we can experience his love. Help us to bring that love out to the rest of the world so that they too may enjoy Jesus. Help us in all things, God, with your grace and your wisdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.